Let's pray together one more time before we dive in. Father, you know my heart and you know our desire for this time together in your word. We also know from your word that you tell us that apart from me, you can do nothing and the flesh profits nothing. And we really don't want this to just be a time of one man speaking to men and women, boys and girls. We want this to be a time where you, the God who inspired this text and spoke it, had it written down, had it translated into English so that we would know it, understand it, and live it out. So pray that you would be what you are already by nature, which is so eager to bless and so eager to do good to your people. So I proceed with great confidence knowing that you are far more jealous for the application of this text in the hearts of your people than any pastor could be. So we just pray together that you would do us good spiritually this morning and that we would leave the better for having spent this time together in your word. Thank you for the privilege to have an English Bible. Thank you for the privilege of um, being able to read it. And um, thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit with us now, granting us the gift of illumination so that we can understand it. So please, Holy Spirit, come and help. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. A friend will always think of others. A friend will overlook a wrong. A friend sticks closer than a brother. A friend is patient all along. Jesus, let me be the friend you are to me. A friend will help me do the right things. A friend won't lead me into sin. A friend will help me when I stumble. A friend will lift me up again. Jesus, help me find a friend who will make me wise. Those are the verses of a song called A Good Friend from a Sovereign Grace kid CD called Walking with the Wise. It's designed to teach children the book of Proverbs and themes within the book of Proverbs. And in many ways, these lyrics capture and help to express what I want to say this morning about what true spiritual friendship looks like. In our text this morning, Galatians 5, 26 through 6, 5, Paul is beginning to really press home and apply the gospel that he's been teaching and the implications of that gospel for the life of the church community. If you've been with us for these months while we've been in Galatians, you know that the burden of Paul's letter was to defend the gospel that he preached that was under attack. And in chapters 1 and 2, he gave sort of a spiritual autobiography where he talked about himself as an apostle, not from men or by men, but from Jesus Christ. So therefore, he has authority to, to, to preach the gospel that he proclaimed. He didn't receive it from himself. He received it from Jesus. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he starts to 
express and lay out exactly what the gospel was that he was preaching. And it was a gospel that said that we are counted righteous before God on the basis of what Jesus did and not what we do. It's a gospel of good news about what God has done and not a gospel of good advice of what we must do to to get right with God. And he received a lot of flack for preaching that gospel, and there was a lot of implications. Well, does that mean that we can live however we want? And in chapter 5, he starts to unpack that the purpose for which Jesus came and his work for us was to make us into lovers of others. You notice that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith, that is faith in Christ, working through love. Or Galatians 5, 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And then in 5.16, he starts to unpack this conflict that Christians experience between our remaining sin and our new regenerate nature. And in 5.16, he says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 5.18 But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. 5.23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. So he's been moving in a very others-oriented direction. He says, God has done this for you to turn you outside of yourself and make you loving toward one another. And obviously, according to verse 15, that was not what was going on in this church. They were biting and devouring one another or at least on the verge of doing so. And so Paul writes these verses in 5.26 all the way through 6.5 to give us a practical illustration of the love he's talking about. He said, as we said last week, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And now he's going to give a very, very concrete, he's going to take that whole idea of love, take it out of the abstract, take it out of vague feelings, and apply it to a real-life, concrete situation that is supposed to be real-life and concrete in this church. So that's where we're going. Now, I've titled the sermon, How to Be a Friend, because in this text, what we're going to see is what true spiritual friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, do for each other. And I want to talk about and unpack this text under three questions. Here's the first question. What does it mean to be a friend? And we get that answer in verses 1 and 2. What does it mean to be a friend? Look with me, Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, Brothers, talking to Christians, talking to the church there, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So I see two things in these two verses about what it means to be a friend. First, it means that we confront others in their sin. And second, we comfort others in their trouble. So 
confront others and comfort others, or if you would like, confront others and carry others' burdens. So let's look at the first verse, confront others in their sin. We're not to ignore a situation when we see someone caught in a sin. Now notice, he says, brothers, if anyone. So this could happen to anybody who's a Christian. If you think this couldn't happen to you, you're a sitting duck waiting for it to happen to you. If anyone is caught in a sin. Now, what does the word caught mean? It doesn't say if anyone sins. It says if anyone's caught in a sin. This does not mean that we're to confront anyone we see sinning in any way. 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians 13.5, love is not easily angered. It does not keep a record of wrongs. 1 Corinthians 13.7, love hopes all things, endures all things. We are to be a patient, long-suffering, eager-to-forgive people who overlook a lot of little sins. However, this verse also shows that we're not to be quick to criticize people or tell people about their faults. Paul's qualifier is that the person is caught in a sin. That is overtaken, trapped. That is, the sin has become a pattern. It wasn't just they fell at one point. It's that they have fallen and they are not getting out. Think of the illustration of a, of a boxing match or a boxing fight. They don't call it a match, do they? But boxers are, it is a match. Okay, so boxers are in a ring, and imagine one boxer is named Sin, and the other boxer is named Christian, and they're going at it. They're doing the Galatians 5, 16 to 18 conflict, fighting it out in the ring. And all of a sudden, Sin gets Christian in a corner and starts wailing on him, beating him in the corner. He's trapped, and there's no getting out. And he's going down. At that point, the referee steps in between sin and Christian and breaks him up to stop the fight. That's kind of the image that Paul has in mind when he says, brothers, if anyone's caught in a sin. Sin has them on the ropes. They're going down. They're in the corner. It's getting rough. It's looking like it's going to be the end of the fight. Sin has become a pattern, and it's gotten an upper hand in one sense in the person's life. It's a habit of sinful behavior that a person will not be able to overcome without outside intervention. So we must not be neither quick to criticize nor afraid to confront. Because true friends confront others who are caught in their sin. Notice who Paul says should be doing this. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Now, what does you who are spiritual mean? This does not refer to pastors or the spiritually elite, although pastors are to do that. Keep the context in mind. Who are the spiritual people? People who are, according to verse 16 through 18, fighting sin in their life, making war on sin, They are those who are seeking to bear the fruit of the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. 
They belong to Jesus Christ and have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, verse 24. Paul is saying anyone who's trying to live a Christian life should do this. You who are spiritual, if you're fighting sin in your sin yourself and you're seeking to love others and you're being led by the Spirit, you're spiritually qualified. So we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook by saying, well, I'm not spiritual. Shame on you. How can you say that? Not spiritual. Now, obviously, there is an assumption here that some people will be more spiritual than others, and there are some, there are some reasons uh, to not, that that person might not want to confront at that moment. But we're going to talk about, I think what Paul means, are, that that qualification of some people who are spiritual and some people who are not spiritual is unpacked later in the verse by saying, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, doing it in a spirit of gentleness. The person just personality-wise or they can tend to come off harsh and different, they probably shouldn't do it. They should go with somebody else. But what Paul is saying is any Christian should be looking out for other Christians. You who are spiritual, be looking out for this. What does he tell us to do? He tells us to restore him. You who are spiritual should restore him. Now, the Greek word used for the word restore is very interesting. It's used in the Gospel of Mark to talk about the mending of the nets that the disciples were doing, fixing the nets. And it's also used in other Greek literature as setting a dislocated bone back in place. Now, those of you who've ever had a dislocated bone, I haven't. I can only imagine. But... I've heard it said that it actually hurts more to relocate the dislocated bone than it actually hurt to get it dislocated. To pop it back into place is incredibly painful at first, but then once it's back in, it's happy. You're happy. feels better. But it is incredibly painful to pop that bone back in that's been dislocated. And that's a helpful illustration for what this restoration is meant to look like. It's setting a a dislocated bone back. If a person is caught in a sin, they have dislocated something. And it's going to be a painful process to get it back in place. But after it's back in place, there will be massive healing. It's not going to be easy. It's never easy. It's painful to reset a bone, but it's necessary. So that's what Paul calls upon those of us who are spiritual to do. But he also tells us how to do it, doesn't he? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So he tells us to do it gently or humbly and also with a view to ourselves. Here's Paul's point. You will not be able to winsomely and faithfully confront people in their sin if you do not believe that you are as susceptible to temptation as they are, and as capable of similar or equal or even greater sin than they are. You disqualify yourself from being able to helpfully restore a person by not believing you can do the same thing. They're going to taste that in your demeanor. So if we detect someone doing something wrong, we're not to stand by doing nothing, thinking, well, that's none of my business, or wishing not to get involved. That would be far too much trouble. Nor are we to despise and condemn the person in our heart and saying, well, serves them right. Nor are we to report him or gossip about them to our friends. Rather, 
We are to restore them, following the pattern Jesus gave us in Matthew 18, where he instructs us to go to him individually first, and then if necessary, take two, and then necessary, go again with more, and then eventually bring it to the church. So that is what a true friend does. They are willing to say the hard things and do the hard things for the sake of their friend, those whom they love. They're willing to tell them hard things, talk to them about difficult matters related to their sin. Oscar Wilde, the famous English writer, said that a true friend stabs you in the front. And that's his typical sarcastic way of expressing the fact that true friends will tell you things that you don't want to hear. They'll stab you in the front. They won't stab you in the back. But they'll stab you in the front. Why do we need to do this? The text doesn't answer it. But do I need to even answer that question? Paul assumes that he doesn't have to give a reason why brothers would want to do this for one another. It's what it means to love. Those who say, I love my friend too much to tell them the hard things, don't love their friend. And they're not a friend. It's what it means to glorify God. It's what it means to love others. It's what it means to fulfill the law. It's what it means to bear the fruit of the Spirit. It's what it means to glorify Jesus. It's what it means to be like Jesus. So that's the first thing we see about what it means to be a friend. They confront others in their sin. But the second thing we see is that they carry others' burdens or they comfort others in their troubles. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's been said that a friend is someone who always lets you in and never lets you down. A friend is someone who's always there for you. We are not to let people in our church carry their burdens alone. A burden or load is anything that is weighing a person down. It could be a responsibility that they have, caring for a child or moving to a new house. It could be a difficulty that they have, like some problem, some illness. To help with a burden is to come very close to that burdened person, to stand virtually in their shoes, put your own strength under their burden, and allow some of that weight to fall onto you so that it's distributed between both of you, making it lighter. You know, I was moving lots of boxes this week. Most of you got the email that knows know that we're moving and packing up boxes and loading books and boxes. is very heavy. And um, my father-in-law came over to help us move some boxes this week. And, you know, when you're moving and you're thinking about burdens... <laughs> It just it becomes more and more obvious as you lift box after box after box. And, you know, it's so much easier. We, we hear it said around here all the time, many hands make light work. And to be able to evenly distribute the weight of that box is wonderful, liberating, not challenging at all. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 when Paul's talking about being burdened? He said, I was burdened so much almost to the brink of death. But I was comforted by the coming of Titus. A friend came to him and helped him in his burden, alleviated his burden, carried his burden. So how do we bear burdens? Well, of course, it depends on the nature of the burden, doesn't it? Sorrow, 
worry, doubt, failure, poverty, loneliness, illness, divorce, disability, depression. The burdens can be endless. They can be emotional. They can be physical. They can be spiritual. But all of it will require ourselves to be burdened to help them. Perhaps you've said to yourself or heard someone say, I would love to help them, but I am so busy. I don't have time to help them. And what you're really saying is I would love to bear their burden without having to bear a burden. You cannot bear burdens without bearing burdens. It's a different level of burden depending on what the weight, the weight, amount of weight the person is carrying. It could just be prayer. It could be a warm hug. It could be kind words of comfort and sympathy. It could be cleaning a house. It could be bringing a meal. It could be sharing a resource. It could be as little as that. Or it could be in it for the long haul, digging in, working with the person. But they, there are all ways, if we're going to unburden someone else, We have to be willing to burden ourselves. Let me share a quote with you from Tim Tim Keller about this burdening ourselves to unburden others. He uses the language of all life-changing love, all true burden-bearing is an act of substitutionary sacrifice. It's an act whereby you take upon yourself the burdens of others. He says, think about it. If you love a person whose life is all put together and has no major needs, it costs you nothing. It's delightful. There are probably four or five people like that where you live, and you ought to find them and become their friend. (laughs) But if you ever try to love somebody who has needs, someone who is in trouble or who is persecuted or emotionally wounded, it's going to cost you. You can't love them without taking a hit yourself. A transfer of some kind is required so that somehow their troubles, their problems, transfer to you. They're going to cost you some sleepless nights. They're going to, cost, they're going to increase your levels of anxiety. There are a lot of wounded people out there. They are emotionally sinking. They're hurting, and they desperately need to be loved. And when they are with you, you want to look at your watch And make a graceful exit because listening to them with all their problems can be grueling. It can be exhausting to be a friend to an emotionally damaged person. The only way they're going to start filling up emotionally is if somebody loves them. And the only way to love them is to let yourself be emotionally drained. Some of your fullness is going to have to go into them and you have to empty out to some degree. If you hold on to your emotional comfort and simply avoid those people, they will sink. The only way to love them is through substitutionary sacrifice. So that's what it means to be a friend. Point number two, what keeps us from friendship? Because if you're following with me, you know that to be a true friend to someone doesn't mean just updating your status on Facebook so they can read it. And that the fact that you have a great number of Facebook friends doesn't mean you have a whole lot of true friends. And that's good. That's biblical. 
to confront others in their sin and be willing to carry their burdens. You can't do that for everybody, but you've got to be doing it for somebody. So what keeps us from this kind of friendship? Verse 26 of chapter 5 tells us what keeps us from this kind of friendship. This is the verse preceding what we just looked at, 526, which really goes with 6-1. Paul says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, how do we define the word conceit? Paul says, let us not become conceited. The Greek word translated conceit literally means without glory, empty of honor, vain glory. That is, it's the attempt rooted in deep insecurity and a perceived absence of honor and glory that you feel like you should be receiving, which results in comparing yourself with others and needing to prove your worth to others. We get a peek at that in verse 4 of chapter 6, where Paul says, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. There's this comparison thing going on in the church in Galatia. And Paul is saying, don't become vainglorious. Don't become empty of honor so that you need to prove your worth to others by the way you live. And he, then he talks about two specific fruit of that kind of conceit. Notice it in verse 26. Let's not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. These are the two possible effects of conceit. To provoke someone means to call them out, to challenge them to a contest, bring it on, provoking them. To envy someone is to be jealous of them. Provoking is the stance of someone who feels it superior to others and looks down on them. But envying someone is the stance of someone who feels inferior to others, and it results in being jealous to someone they feel is above them. Let me say that one more time. Provoking is the stance of someone who feels superior to others, and it results in looking down on someone they feel is below them. But envying is the stance of someone who feels inferior to others, and it results in being jealous of someone they feel is above them. What's the result of both of these kinds of things? The, the, the result is the same. Both of them are forms of conceit. Both the superior person and the inferior person are self-absorbed. And we, when we are absorbed with ourselves and our position in the eyes of others, we're crippled from having any sort of desire to serve anybody. We will not have a disposition of help toward others. Since both the inferior and the superior person are trying to gain their sense of worth through competition and comparison, they are both born out of radical insecurity. And deeply, deeply insecure people cannot love people well. So let me apply this to us. Do you tend to be provoking or envying? We all have a particular form of conceit we're prone to because we all still have that Native sin about us, pride, pride, reputation, comparison. So do you tend to be more of a provoking person or an envying person? Let me give you some questions to ask yourself. Do you tend to blow up or clam up? 
If you blow up, you're a provoking person. If you clam up, you're an in, you're a envying person. When people call upon you to bear a burden or you see a burden that needs to be borne, do you think, why should I have to do this? Can't they take care of it themselves? I mean, they got themselves into that mess. They should get themselves out. I'd never have to do this if I was that person. Provoking. You're too important to get down and bear that burden. That's below you. They're inferior to you because you're morally superior to them because you didn't, because your self-righteous self says, I'm better. But the inferior person, the person who clams up, sees a burden, and they say, I don't know what to do. What will I say? How will I help? What if it becomes too demanding? Uh, I don't want to get involved. They clam up. That's because they envy. They're motivated by envy. What will other people think? I don't want to lose my status. Number two, here's a different question. Do you tend to blow up or clam up? Here's the second one. Do you tend to pick arguments with people or avoid confrontation? If you're a brawler, you pick fights, you're provoking. If you're, but if you tend to avoid confrontation, you're an, you envy. Number three, do you tend to look down on certain individuals or groups on the one hand or be embarrassed and intimidated to be around other individuals or groups? How do you receive criticism from your spouse or a friend? Or Do you tend to get very angry and judgmental and shoot right back? Or do you tend to get very discouraged and defensive and make a lot of excuses and give in right away and just say you're sorry, sorry, sorry? without really dealing with the issue. We're all conceited. We all have elements and remnants of conceit, and it keeps us from being true friends. Here's the bottom line. Those who do not help others in their struggles or who live lives of what one writer called splendid isolation from others are guilty of pride. Because those who are conceited and proud are consumed with themselves rather than others. So our level of pride can be measured by how much, how willing we are to inconvenience ourselves for the good of other people. The humble, Jesus Christ being the greatest, most humble of all, inconvenienced himself for the sake of others. And that's why we look at him and see him as as humble. Proud people do not inconvenience themselves for anybody. They will not be inconvenienced. They will have a hundred excuses ready for why they shouldn't be the one to help. Is that you? So that's what keeps us from friendship. The bottom line of what keeps us from friendship is ourselves. Self-love, self-pride, self-preoccupation, self-absorption. Ourselves, our time, our family, our church, our this, our that. And it keeps us from being loving. Now here's point three. Where in the world do we get the spiritual resources to be friends. Where do we get the spiritual resources to love, to confront, to carry burdens, 
to not be so self-absorbed and preoccupied and consumed with our own wants. Where do we get the spiritual resources to be that way? And this text gives us everything we need. It's right under our noses. And I want to say three things that we need to understand that will unlock the spiritual resources we need to lovingly confront, to carry burdens, to be willing to get involved in people's messes for their good because we love them. And it will be motivated by a gentle heart that has been gentled by the gospel, that has been that will give you the appropriate disposition that you need to have and the appropriate endurance that you need to have to love people well over the long haul. So where do you get that? Here's the first place you get it. You get it from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where you get all your spiritual resources for everything. But I want to show you specifically how the gospel ministers to our propensity to not want to confront and not carry burdens and to be self-absorbed. And here's how the gospel ministers to it. It meets our need for approval. What is causing us to be self-preoccupied and self-absorbed is, at one level, our need for approval. We want people to think well of us. What keeps us from confronting others is our need for approval. We want people to think well of us. What keeps us from carrying burdens is our need for approval. What will people think if they see me doing that? So how does the gospel of Jesus Christ help us slay that dragon of self-absorption and approval-seeking? Verse 2. Look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way, so fulfill the law of Christ. The law here, I think, is used to say the, the pattern of Jesus, following the footsteps of Christ. So how did Christ meet our need for approval, bear our burden? Think about this. Only the gospel can give us a whole new self-image that is not based on comparison with other people. Only the gospel makes us neither disdain ourselves and hate ourselves or be overconfident. But the gospel makes us both humble and bold at the same time. Now, how does it do that? If I'm operating out of an inferiority or a superiority posture, then it's because I'm functionally believing that my salvation depends upon my performance or the opinion I have of myself or that others have of me. At that level, that's what I'm functionally believing. I'm looking to other people to give me the validation that I need. But the gospel tells me that I am completely accepted and secure in what Jesus has done for me, and therefore I don't need to compare myself with others or seek to gain a status from others. We don't need to do that. The God of the universe in Jesus Christ has already declared me righteous and accepted and approved. He's conferred upon me a status I can never gain or lose. My quest for approval and status is done. I have the stamp of approval from God. Therefore, to seek to gain a reputation based on caring, uh, comparing myself with others reveals and contributes to radical insecurity. Only heart belief in the gospel will bring us to the place of not needing to compare ourselves with others because of the, the approval we have in Christ. 
And therefore, we are free to serve without reference to ourselves or any perceived loss we might incur. We are the most secure people in the world at that point. It gives both humility, because I'm no better than anyone else, and boldness, because I don't need to fear anyone else, that enables me to be a good friend to others and confront them in their sin or or carry them in their trouble. In Christ, we have both the pattern and the power for loving others. Here's another angle on that, on the gospel. When it says, bear one one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, in verse 2, that verse could be paraphrased as, bear one another's burdens just as Jesus bore yours. Jesus took your greatest burden, your sin and the judgment it deserved. He bore your greatest burden. Any inconvenience that might be brought into your life, quote, inconvenience, is going to be used by God for your everlasting joy, your temporal joy, because you will find that that to be a loving is the most humanizing thing you can do. You actually, as you love people, you feel like you're being a human. Like, in Christ, as I love people, I just feel like I'm, do, I'm like I'm a human being. It's humanizing. And when Jesus took our greatest burden, he laid that on himself and he calls us to bear others much lighter burdens. And who's he calling us to bear the burdens of? Christians. You move in as a worker alongside Jesus who is carrying the biggest part of the load in that relationship anyway. You don't have to fix them. You don't have to save them. You don't have to transform their heart. All you got to do is help them bear a burden. That's it. You're not called to be the Savior. You're called to help bear the burden, and he does the heavy lifting. Jesus does the heavy lifting, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a part in it. He loves us too much, and he wants us involved because he wants that relationship to deepen between ourselves and him and that person. And the only way we're going to do that is if we share the burden together. Jesus, it's the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's doing for us that frees us from our need to seek approval and try to pers- to uh, get an honor for ourselves or get a status for ourselves, worry about our lives and what they're gonna, what's going to happen to them if we do that. We can just say, Lord, here I am, send me. I'm at your service. You're going to do whatever's good for me. Give myself to the burden. And I look out at a church that is filled with excellent burden bearers. I don't say this in any way as a a smash on you. I'm saying this to you because it's in the text this week and it's what God wants you to hear. I'm not saying this as a hobby horse because I feel like we need to come along and beat you up to bear a burden. You are a burden-bearing people. You respond well to that. You see brothers and sisters in need and your initial reaction, though mingled with this, I'm sure, because you're made of the same stuff I am, 
Nevertheless, by grace, you conquer that and you try to move forward and bear the burden. What I'm trying to do is just strengthen your hands in that. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to keep you from growing weak in that. If you forget Jesus, you will grow weary. If you forget the gospel and you don't make heart application of the gospel to that burden and and the struggles that you're feeling, you will grow weary and you will get tired and emotionally drained. So the way you have to do is you have to fill yourself up with the love and acceptance and glory of Christ and being a child of God and being an heir of heaven and all is well and move in. And to the degree that you fit that... If, that you forget that and aren't, aren't appropriating that and aren't meditating on that and aren't praying that in to the degree you will feel an increased burden in your call to bear burdens for others. And I don't want you to feel unnecessarily burdened. I want you to have the spiritual resources to love people over the long haul. Now, Jesus is the big spiritual resource, but he's not the only spiritual resource in this text because we haven't gotten to verses three to five yet. And those give us more spiritual resources for bearing burdens verses 3 to 5. Look at verse 3 of chapter 6 with me. So first is understanding the gospel, and the second is understanding ourselves, and we're going to see that in verse 3. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Now, why did Paul say that? Throw in this statement about humility and the need to be humble. Notice he gives it as a ground for bearing burdens. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Now, what does that mean? It takes humility to bear burdens. It takes humility to bear burdens. If we think we're something, we will be too self-important to have a servant's heart. Too self-important to have a servant's heart. I'm something. I don't do that. We will expect other people to carry their own burdens. But a recognition that you are nothing, and that's not a flattering word. You are nothing in and of yourself. You are nothing. That's gloriously liberating, by the way. (laughs) Really liberating. Jesus is the big thing. He's something. His will is something. His call to you is something. Confronting others in their sin is something. Carrying others' burdens is something. You are nothing. And he's trying to beat that into these people. You're not the issue. They're the issue. He's the issue. A recognition that we are nothing in ourselves will humble us enough to be willing to do anything. Nothing will be beneath you if you are nothing. Nothing is beneath those who are nothing. Thinking you are something doesn't change the fact that you're nothing either. These people think they're something, but they're nothing. So you might as well get on board with God's assessment of you. Enjoy that. And be freed by that. We don't have to. The status that we would attain from others by being conceited, provoking and envying one another, is just adding nothing to nothing. It's dressing up dead people. It's, dress, it's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It's going to go away. 
The status we're working so hard to maintain, the image we're working to maintain, it means nothing. It's based on people who are going to die. I'm preaching that because I need to hear that stuff. And Paul says the remedy to this, that where you get the spiritual resources, is to really think about yourself. Think about the fact that you're nothing. You've been bought with a price. According to verse 24 of chapter 5, you belong to Christ Jesus. Don't belong to you anymore. Don't get to call the shots in your life. Thought he was Lord and Savior. Then you make that profession at baptism, keep living like it. That's what Paul's saying. So understanding the gospel is critical, understanding ourselves, verse 3, is critical, but also understanding our responsibility is critical too. And that's what 4 and 5 talk about. But let each one test his own work. Paul's saying, be focused on yourself. Stop looking at other people. Stop comparing yourself. Think about your, what's your own life in relationship to God. That's what he's saying. Get your eyes off each other. Get your eyes on God and on Jesus and on the gospel and on others. Be concerned with your own work. Test your own work. Then his reason to boast, he's going to give a good reason to be proud now. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. In other words, he'll actually have a good reason to feel good about himself because he's obeying God. Rather than being concerned about feeling good about himself because other people look up to him or think well of him. Your boast won't be concerned with this person thinks well of me. My neighbor, this guy thinks a lot of me. He's like, no, his boast will be in himself and God. That's his point. And then verse 5, for each one will have to bear his own load. So Paul calls us to assess our own opportunities to care and serve others and our responsibilities in those situations. We should measure ourselves against God and ourselves and not against others. God has given each of us a different set of liabilities and a different set of opportunities, a different set of weaknesses, a different set of gifts, a different set of responsibilities in our in our. Our, our job is to obey what God has called us to do in those moments. So we are to help others with their tasks and problems, but we're also to understand our responsibility in that situation, which is to focus on ourselves and, our, and, and what we're called upon by God to do and have no reference to what other people think, but being consumed with the gospel, Jesus, his will, and being focused on the, our own load that we carry and not on others and their lack of it. Now, I think there's also an instructive word in verse 5 for this recognizing our responsibility when it says each one will have to bear his own, his own load. Some people think that this refers to the judgment, like John Stott said in my reading this week, that there is one burden that no one can carry for you, and that is the burden uh, of the day of judgment when you have to stand before the Lord. I just don't think that's the point here. I, I love Stott, and I respect him a ton, and I'm willing to be wrong, and I hope he'll correct me in glory if I am, because he's going to get there faster than I am. <laughs> uh, maybe, yeah, he's, that guy's lived a long time. Um, but, but when it says each one will have to bear his own load, obviously he's having reference to what he just said in verse 4 with 
the reason not to boast, being yourself alone, bearing your own load. I, I think this has a word for people also who are currently experiencing the burdens or called upon to bear, bear the burden. It's just another comfort to know that your responsibility is to do what you can to bear the burden and to care and not overburden them by you not being able to carry your own load and not being able to do things yourself. We could mine that out. That, that, that whole phrase gave me great difficulty this week. And I was just thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. And I'm still not totally sure I've got the, all the nuances down and what's going on there. I don't feel like I have to, but um, you get the point. Understanding the gospel and understanding yourself and your responsibility is the key that unlocks this power for friendship and this kind of love that we're so prone to not do. Now, let me conclude with five brief applications, five brief lessons or words of application for us. First application. We learned something here about constant intimacy. Constant intimacy. That's how I'm defining friendship. We get a definition of friendship here, what friendship is all about. Friendship is about, like I said, someone who always lets you in and never lets you down. We get someone who never lets you down. They're willing to bear a burden. They're willing to inconvenience themselves for your good, and they won't let you go to ruin. They won't let you go to ruin. They're committed to you over the long haul. They're constant friends, and they're willing to speak to you about the intimate issues of your life, the, the, the dark places and the hard places. So that's we learn, we learn what true friends are for us, and I hope you have some. And if you don't, you need some. You need some really bad. And the way you get them is by being them. You get a good friend by being a good friend. Be this way to others, and you will have friends. Kind of scary, though. Because when you start confronting people and carrying their burdens, you're giving them an invitation to do that to you as well. And it'll be, it'll be wonderful. It'll be the best friendships you ever have. So um, that's one. Number two, second lesson. We learn something about our self-conscious identity. We learn something about our self-conscious identity. What do I mean by that? I mean our assessment of ourselves will determine our attitude toward other people. Our assessment of ourselves determines our attitude toward other people. If we view ourselves as something, we will either envy others or look down on them, or we, and we will not serve them. However, if we view ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ, humbled by the grace we have collectively received, recognizing that we are nothing and belong to Jesus to serve his redemptive purposes, we will love and serve each other well. If that's our self-conscious identity. Tom Schreiner says, those who envy others find joy in the sins of others since the faults of others are on full display and they look better by comparison. But the one who truly loves others and is walking by the Spirit approaches them with firmness mingled with humility. Number three, not only constant intimacy, not only self-conscious identity, but individual responsibility. Individual responsibility. We learn something about what our responsibility is in bearing burdens. We must not and this is a word for those who have had a lot of burdens borne by people. I just want to give this uh, as a loving, faithful word because I know I'm not, I don't say this. I, I just want you to hear this with my pastoral sensitivity, and I hope you give me grace in saying it. There are some 
incredibly sweet people who have, who have endured legitimate burdens that they did not anticipate. That I'm not saying that every time a person is burdened with something that they need to feel guilty about that. They should not most of the time. Should not feel guilty about the fact that they are burdened about something. It could have been an illness that was unexpected. It could have been a serious trial that came into their life unexpected. It could have been a relationship that was ripped apart. I'm not saying that we shouldn't um, show great sensitivity and, and love hopes all things. We don't just start criticizing. But at the same time, there is a propensity because of our culture to adopt a victim mentality and to create over-dependence and codependence on other people to where you need them to be for you, where you're trying to make them a Jesus. And I don't know anybody's heart in that way. I don't have anybody in mind. I'm just saying that I know my own heart and I know people enough to know that you can kind of begin to, people move in, they love you, they they bear your burden, they care for you, and all of a sudden you start looking to them like a savior. And you start treating them like a savior. You call them a ton, call, 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 got this burden, got this burden, got this burden. And this person's just, oh, don't, they love you, but they're just going down. And I'm saying here that we need to, and I would say both, the person who's burdening and the person who's being burdened both have responsibility in that situation. It's not either or. It's not the per- Well, they didn't tell me they were being burdened. I would have stepped away. That is their fault. They should have told you. Like, I, I love you. I'll pray for you. I can't do that right now. But let me do this. Da-da-da-da-da. But I'm just saying those who are burdened, I don't want you to feel like, feel guilty for accepting the burden. I want you to be sensitive to those you're burdening. That's all I'm saying. Be sensitive to it. That's it. Sensitive. That's it. So I don't want to step on too many toes or anything like that. I'm just, we as Christians must be accountable to God first for our behavior. And we're accountable to God for the way we burden others. Especially if we are, if it's more of a responsibility that we are asking them to take on and not a liability. It's not something that's happened to us. And I'm just trying to parse that stuff out so that you guys will will, will feel that more. Because, I mean, a lot of times in a sermon like this, you can, you can go all the way to one end talking about bearing the burdens. Bearing, and we should. We should. That's the point of the text. Bear it, bear it, bear it, bear it, bear it. But I'm just saying be sensitive too. So that's a lesson about individual responsibility. But let me close where the text closes and emphasizes with two more quickly. Number four, genuine community. We learn something about what genuine community is, don't we? What a real church does. There's a delicate balance in this text between bearing your own burden and helping others bear their burdens. We must be concerned with and involved in the lives of others. And of course, there will be various levels of intimacy and various levels of burden bearing in the different relationships in your life and in the different church. We shouldn't be quick to criticize people. Well, they don't look like they're bearing much. Why don't they do something? You don't know the burdens they might be bearing. Hope all things. Love hopes all things. Don't be so quick to criticize. That's not obeying. That's comparing yourself with others. That's not looking at yourself and what God's called you to do in that moment. But here's the point. Genuine community is always a group of burden-bearing people. 
And I would say a healthy community is seen in the fact that many people are bearing many burdens. At least that seems to be what Paul thinks healthy community is. That's what he's calling them to be here. As Phil Riken says, a believer is called to be one of God's bellhops. Always ready to pick up somebody else's baggage. We, that's what we are. Because Jesus was our cosmic bellhop who came down and bore our baggage, all of it, so that we could be free to carry. He carried our 10-ton truck on his own shoulders so that we can pick up somebody else's duffel bag and take it to the door for him. So that's genuine community. And then finally, authentic spirituality. We get a lesson here about what it means to be really spiritual. Spiritual people are not people who have mystic experiences with the Spirit and attend worship services and do hot laps and have private devotions and conduct family worship. That's part of being spiritual. It may be. Real spirituality is concrete, brothers and sisters. It gets worked out in the nitty-gritty mess of life. Because it says here, if you live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. And this is what it means to walk by the Spirit. The true test of spirituality is whether we're willing to roll up our sleeves and get involved in each other's mess, shoulder burdens, and lovingly and humbly confront sin. That is, did I just say get involved in each other's mess? Well, we are in Owensboro, but I didn't mean that. <laughs> Mess. Should not get involved. In, that's a sin you have to confront. Well, let me close. I began by quoting the verses to a kid's song, and I want to close with the chorus of that song. I just quoted the verses. And this is what I pray. This will be my prayer for us as a church. Here's the chorus. A good friend, true friend. Here to help you through, friend. Strong friend, kind friend, you can have what's mine, friend. Best friend, sure friend, humble and a pure friend. Lord, I want to be a good friend. Let's pray. Father, we do want to be good friends, good brothers and sisters to each other, bearing one another's burdens confronting each other lovingly, humbly, gently. We want to know our own responsibility. We want to understand the gospel well. We want to, we want to obey this passage well. So my prayer is that we would have, that there would be an immediately, immediate discernible difference in our lives as a result of this sermon today. In Jesus' name, amen.